Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.25, The Ohio Country. Last time, we spent our episode looking at the five, then eventually six, nations of the Iroquois. During our episode, we began touching on the subject of the Ohio country. This week, we are going to dive headlong into that region and explore why it is going to prove to be so critical in events to come. We are going to spend our time looking at who was in control of the region, both politically and in reality, who was attempting to settle there, and who were the native tribes who had already settled in that region. Before we can really dive in and start looking at the Ohio country, we need to answer one very specific question. Where exactly is the Ohio country? Now, unsurprisingly, the Ohio country did in fact include the modern-day state of Ohio. However, it was a bit larger than that. The eastern half of the area bordered the Appalachian Mountains, a range that had long proved to be a natural barrier to English expansion, something that we will talk more about today. As a bit of help to show where everything is, Pittsburgh would have been one of the furthest east settlements in the area. Though, as we will discuss down the road, we are talking about the precursor to Pittsburgh. To the west, it extended into modern-day Indiana. To the south, it follows roughly the path of the Ohio River. All in all, the Ohio country includes lands that have become modern-day Ohio, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Kentucky, and West Virginia. Now that we know where it is, let's jump into the actual conversation. Why is it that in the 1740s, everybody suddenly seems to have become interested in the Ohio country? For the British, growth into the region had historically been slow, though not non-existent. The British had long been hemmed in by the Appalachian Mountains. The mountain range acted as something of a natural border, which, likewise, offered protection to the British along their western frontier. However, as we move towards the 1740s, British colonists expanded beyond the Appalachians. For their part, the French had weak claims over the territory, with the key word being weak. The problem for the French is that they can claim whatever they want. However, without sufficient population to back up that claim, it rings somewhat hollow. We know that by the middle part of the 1750s, the French had a total population in North America of right around 80,000. This includes some 55,000 in Canada, with the rest split between New Orleans and the remaining French colonists in Acadia. The British, by contrast, had over 1 million colonists in North America by this point, and that is not counting any of the enslaved population, which numbered somewhere between 250 and 300,000. Of course, as we discussed last time, there is another player in the Ohio region as well, the Iroquois. The Iroquois were absolutely in decline by the middle of the 18th century, and everybody knew it though that did not mean that they were just some pushover. The Iroquois were still in control of, at least nominally, much of the land that made up the Ohio country. Not to mention that they had a significant number of client tribes living there as well. What we know so far is that the Ohio country is a large tract of land that the British, French, and Iroquois all had a stake in. The question, however, that would become so critical is exactly why each group wanted it. What did it mean for the French? The British? The Iroquois? These questions are going to help explain why the entire region would become such a tinderbox during the 1750s. 
we are going to spend our entire episode from this point on today looking at each group and examining exactly what they were looking for in the Ohio country. To begin, we are going to take a look at what the French were hoping to gain in the region. For the French, there were two primary objectives that came along with the Ohio country. First, they wanted to gain control over a series of rivers, chiefly the Ohio, which drained out into the Mississippi. The Mississippi was the superhighway to the Gulf of Mexico, and the last thing that the French wanted to do for their trade in Canada was lose control over it. Their second aim was protecting the highly lucrative trade between the French and the natives. The carefully set up system of alliances was critical for maintaining the peace and stability of the region. Should the British assume a paramount role in the Ohio country, they could potentially undercut French merchants and traders in the territory. Not only would this be economically problematic, but potentially it could cause the local tribes to shift their alliances over to the British. This would, in turn, put the French in a seriously weakened position and could endanger their entire Canadian province's stability. By the end of the 1740s, the French were well aware of the booming number of British traders and merchants who had begun to work in the region. The French solution was a journey into the Ohio country to reaffirm their might and power. While that all sounds well and good, the problem for the French is that they were really lacking in the might and power department. Their answer to this was to project what power they had with an expedition throughout the Ohio country. The hope was that by doing this, they could better ascertain the situation on the ground, open up new relationships with native tribes, while affirming old relationships, as well as proving to everybody that they had the ability to run such an expedition throughout the Ohio country in the first place. Knowing that he had to reassert French authority and power in the Ohio, the task fell onto the shoulders of the Comte de la Galissonniere, the governor-general of New France, who in 1749 appointed Pierre-Joseph de Céleron de Blainville to lead the expedition. Céleron was headed into the Ohio country to reassert French authority. Traveling along with him was a chaplain, 14 officers, and around 200 French and Indian soldiers. The plan was to travel south along the rivers. Leaving in June 1749, Céleron did just that, and over the next five months traveled from the St. Lawrence, down through Lake Ontario and Lake Erie, across the Allegheny, Ohio, and Miami rivers. The journey would lead him to Detroit, where he would from there once again travel through Lake Erie and back up into the Ontario, and then right back up the St. Lawrence towards Quebec. Got it? Well, if you did miss some of that, just suffice it to say that the guy moved through the river system in the Ohio country. The French were stretched thin. It had been a rough decade for them. King George's War having just ended a year before. As we already discussed, their population was only around 55,000, thus paling in comparison to the British, who numbered well over 1 million. Celeron, therefore, did not really have much ability to actually hold any land or meaningfully reassert claims. Without actually having the manpower to build and garrison forts, Celeron did the next best thing. He buried small lead plates that explained to anybody who found them, I suppose by digging in the exact right spot, that the French claimed the land along the river, as well as the lands on both sides of said river, all the way to their source. If you are curious how powerful burying these lead plates was at protecting the claims of the French, it was about as powerful as if you did the same exact thing today. Even if somebody just so happened to stumble upon it, 
Good luck with enforcing that. In defense of Celeron, it isn't as though the guy thought this was going to work. He had to do something and, well, lead plates are indeed something. Jokes aside, leaving plates stating that France was here along riverbanks was not really the primary mission of the Celeron expedition. The primary goal was to reassert French power and remind the Indians that they were only to do business with the French and the French alone. Unsurprisingly, Celeron got less than an enthusiastic response from the Indian tribes that he dealt with. If the British were willing to undercut the French on cost, the Indians were not going to complain. Upon his return to Quebec in November 1749, the report that Celeron gave the new governor-general, La Jolquière, was a very clear warning. The French were losing influence in the Ohio country. They were being undercut by the British in the region and their Indian allies were more than happy to trade with the British, who were offering better prices. Celeron also warned of the sheer number of British traders that he saw passing through on his trip. Celeron warned that if France failed to build forts and permanent trading posts throughout the Ohio country, their influence was going to continue to erode as the British colonists became the dominant power in the region. Despite these very clear warnings, however, Jean-Pierre seemed completely unable to react, and therefore nothing ended up being done until Jean-Pierre up and died in 1752. As we are about to see, the decision to do nothing by Jean-Pierre was not the best move. Things were changing quickly, and that period in between 1749 until his death in 1752 saw the British make significant strides in their quest to expand into the Ohio country. So, with that, let's look at what the British goals were and how they plan to accomplish them. As I mentioned a moment ago, for much of the history of our North American colonies, the Appalachians had proved something of a natural border for the British North American Empire. Yes, there had been missions into the Ohio Valley before, However, it was not really a place that had much going on in terms of British settlement. Come the 1740s, that began to change. As the population of the colonies exploded, so did the interest in expansion and, more importantly, into speculation. There was still open land to claim inside of the borders of the existing colonies. However, the massive population boom of the first half of the 18th century had seriously limited the available land for massive claims like we had seen earlier in the colonial era. There simply was not a chunk of land the size of, say, Pennsylvania, along the Atlantic coast that somebody had not already gobbled up. One thing that North America is not in short supply of is land. Of course, not all land is created equal. The land of the Ohio Valley was, however, of particular value. Specifically, it was access and control over the Ohio River that made it so critical. The Ohio drains directly into the Mississippi, which in turn drains out into the Gulf of Mexico. Easy transportation of goods made for a valuable land and gave it potential for substantial growth. Speculators were therefore eager to buy up large tracts of the Ohio Valley for two reasons. First, at the moment, prices were relatively cheap. Second, with access to the Ohio River, the long-term investment in the region looked like a can't-miss bet. Complicating matters were a complex series of claims over the land. 
virtually everybody claimed that they controlled at least a portion of the Ohio country. Virginia, Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, and Connecticut claimed that they held at least a portion of the region within their control. This is to say nothing of the claims of the rival Iroquois or French. By far, the most aggressive of the colonies was Virginia. Last week, we had mentioned the Treaty of Lancaster. This week, I want to inspect it a bit more closely and look at what actually took place. In 1744, representatives of the Iroquois traveled to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where they met with representatives of Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Maryland. The meeting in Lancaster was, in the minds of the Iroquois, a power move on their part. They were meeting with the British colonies and felt as though they were conducting negotiations on a somewhat equal footing as their European counterparts. Just two years before, they had sided with Pennsylvania during the relocation of the Delaware tribe, deciding that upholding the walking treaty was in their best interest. Of course, to accomplish this, they had to sell out one of their client tribes. A client tribe that had now in large part made their way to the far eastern fringes of territory controlled by the Shawnee, effectively out of the reach and out from under the influence of the Iroquois. Through that treaty, the Iroquois had established themselves to be the main arbitrator of all the tribes that fell under the umbrella of their confederacy. At the 1744 negotiations in Lancaster, the Iroquois felt that they had made out well. They had received substantial monetary compensation. Beyond that, Virginia agreed to allow the Iroquois to pass through Virginia on their way to fight the southern tribes, such as the Cherokee and the Catawabas. All the Iroquois were going to have to do is recognize Virginia's claim under their charter. For the Iroquois, here is where everything went sideways. They thought that they were giving up their claim over the Shenandoah Valley, which was fine considering that the Iroquois only had nominal control over the region anyway. In their minds, they had made off great. They had been paid handsomely, secured the right to travel through Virginia to protect their southern flank, and all they had to do was give up their claim over the Shenandoah Valley, where they never really had any control. The problem, as we also discussed last time, was that the Virginia claim was expansive to say the least, extending all the way out to the Pacific Ocean. The Iroquois had given up all claims over the Ohio country without being aware that they had done it. For Virginia, this was an absolutely tremendous victory on their part. They had cleared their way into the Ohio country, and indeed absolutely zero time was lost getting colonists to settle within the ceded territory. The first and biggest company to form was the Ohio Company of Virginia, formed by Thomas Lee. Before we move on, let's take just a moment to introduce a new family into our story. The Lee family of Virginia is going to become a critical part of our story moving forward, as so many of them are going to be involved in the American Revolution and well beyond. We are going to get to all of them in time, but Thomas Lee's children are Richard Henry Lee and Francis Lightfoot Lee. Both men signed the Declaration of Independence. Thomas Lee is also the great-uncle of Light Horse Harry Lee III and the great-great-uncle of Robert E. Lee. So yeah, the Lee family is going to be in the story for quite a while. The Lee family remains important to this day as Senator Mike Lee of Utah is related to the Lees of Virginia. The Ohio Company of Virginia would officially be formed in 1745 
when the Virginia House of Burgesses granted it over 300,000 acres. Things would, however, initially move at a rather slow pace, as King George's wars made expansion into the region difficult. However, by the end of the decade, the war was over, and colonists began pouring into the Ohio country. The company itself, wanting to get a better handle on exactly what they now claimed, hired Christopher Gist to go out and have a look around. Gist, a trader and surveyor from Maryland, set out in 1749 to explore. Now, just to keep the timeline straight here, it is important to note that at the same time that Celeron is out there burying his plates, Gist is getting ready to head out for the British. As we can clearly see, there was a whole lot of interest in the Ohio country. While Celeron was out there burying his lead plates, Gist was looking around and figuring out just what it was Virginia was now laying claim to. The instructions for Gist were to explore as far west as the Falls of the Ohio, located near Clarksville, Indiana, right across the river from modern-day Louisville, Kentucky. Gist reported back on just how exceptional the land really was. There were large plains clear of shrubs, navigable rivers, forests, and wide, almost endless meadowlands. For the purpose of expansion, there really was not more that you could ask for. Beyond merely being an explorer, however, Gist would take on the critical job of playing a key diplomatic role. Along with the trader George Krogan, Gist worked with the local tribes to secure permission to build forts. George Krogan was no stranger to the Ohio country either by this point, having traded heavily with the Shawnee along the Ohio River for years. He had apparently become such a serious nuisance to the French that they had placed a bounty on his head. In 1752, Krogan joined along with Gist for an all-important meeting at Logstown, Pennsylvania, located just along the Ohio River to the northwest of what is now modern-day Pittsburgh. In addition to Gist and Krogan were representatives from the Delaware, the Iroquois, and the Shawnee. At the meeting, Gist would be dealing primarily with Tana Grissin, a member of the Seneca tribe who was acting as the representative for the Iroquois. It is questionable just how much power Tana Grissin actually had over the Iroquois at this point. Nicknamed the Half-King, Tana Grissin was at least powerful enough to be able to conduct diplomacy on behalf of the Iroquois. However, he did lack the unilateral ability to actually make final treaties a power that belonged to the Iroquois Council. At a bare minimum, he appears to have been a regionally powerful figure, if not actually a high-ranked individual in the greater overall Iroquois Confederacy. The purpose of the conference was that the colonists wanted to get the approval of the tribes to construct a fortified trading post a way south on the forks of the Ohio. Gist argued that a fort would be good for the local economy, as they could trade directly with the tribes, at rates far below what the French could offer. This gets us into the question of what the Iroquois and the other tribes wanted. Well, trade was great and all. All the tribes pretty much agreed that further British colonial incursion would not end well for them. By this point, they had 130 years worth of evidence as to the effect of the British coming into an area. The Powhatan Confederacy, the Wampanoag, and the Narragansett all stood as clear examples of why you did not want to have the British come into your town. However, for Tana Grissin and the Iroquois, 
their power was waning, and they all knew it. A favorable trade deal might well be the kind of thing that would prop up a flailing empire long enough for a more permanent solution to be found. Plus, it really did not hurt that Krogan and Gist gave Tana Grissin a pretty nice bribe. Needing to appease the Delaware tribe, Tana Grissin agreed to raise one of their chiefs to the level of king, which essentially granted them the autonomy to act independently of the Confederacy. With plans for this new trading post now secured, it meant that the British would have a permanent presence at the forks of the Ohio. As we are going to see in short order, this is going to have a dramatic effect. Before we can get too excited about our new trading post, events would again intervene. Right around the time that the events in Logstown were wrapping up, tensions would flare some 200 miles to the west in the trading town of Pickawillany. Pickawillany was located near the modern-day town of Piqua, Ohio. Located in Miami territory, Pickawillany was the primary trading village of George Krogan. On June 21, 1752, a group made up of 200 French and Indian soldiers under the command of Charles Michel de Langlade attacked Pickawillany. The attack was devastating. Virtually all of the women in town were captured. The men were absent as they had been out hunting. However, with the women of the village now being held hostage, Langlade made an offer that the villagers could not refuse. He did not really care about the Miami people. His beef was not with the tribe. He said that he would leave them all safely if all they did was turn over the traitors that were living amongst them. What followed was stunning. Reportedly, the mixed group took at least two of the traitors that were handed over and made examples of them. In one case, the warriors ripped out the traitor's heart and ate it. In the other case, they boiled the other traitor alive and apparently ate him as well. With their point being made, Langlade turned around, and he and his men made their way back up north towards Detroit. This was a very big deal. Pickawillany was one of the larger trading posts in the area, and the French had just made a very clear warning to any English traders in the region looking to do business. The Miami tribe, now clearly desperate for help, reached out to Pennsylvania for assistance. This unfortunately was stymied quickly, though, because of the Quakers controlling the Pennsylvania Assembly. The Quakers had no interest in getting involved in a conflict and wished to stick with their strict pacifism. Similar pleas were made to Virginia, however, those were dismissed just as quickly, as the affair was simply too far away. The assault at Pickawillany illustrates just how desperate the situation had become for the French. They simply could not afford to lose influence in the region to an expansionist set of British colonists. As a result of the lack of response from the British, the Miami tribe was forced to return to a place of French dependence. Despite this, however, the French victory was far from complete or, in practicality, meaningful. Not that it was not a blow to the British trading efforts, as it certainly was. However, it did nothing to deter the British expansion that was agreed to following the conference at Logstown. The fort that was agreed to be built along the Allegheny River was still going to move along as planned. Therefore, while the French attack was certainly an unwelcome development, it did little to meaningfully slow down the ever-increasing pace of British expansion. 
Well, the victory at Piccawillany had little practical effect. It is not like the French were just going to decide to call it a day and head home. In fact, after years of a lack of response, things for the French were about to change. The French response to events, aside, of course, from the Langlade raid, had always been rather tepid. After all, we are just a few years removed from Celeron burying his lead plates throughout the Ohio Valley to hold the French claim. Things would change, however, after the arrival of the Marquis Duquesne, who arrived in Quebec during the summer of 1752 to take control of Canada. A naval officer by trade, Duquesne arrived with little interest in pointless measures, such as burying plates throughout the region. Duquesne understood the importance of the Ohio country to French interests. Beyond the land itself, the rivers and the trade were something that the French simply could not lose control over. Duquesne understood this and indeed brought clear orders from France that the mission was to drive the British from the Ohio country. Lead plates were not going to cut it. But you know what would? A military presence. And that was the exact thing that Duquesne planned on bringing to the region. Within a year, Duquesne was busy building forts throughout the Ohio country and establishing a permanent French foothold in the Ohio. There were four initial forts that were built, moving from Lake Erie to the south. It was the southernmost of these forts that was going to prove to be the most problematic. For the southernmost fort, Duquesne picked a site located along the forks of the Ohio. Set to begin construction in 1754, this was going to be an obvious problem, considering that the British also had a fort in the immediate area, that fort that had been agreed to at Logstown some years before. The British had full intention of controlling the forks for themselves. For Duquesne, the price to build at the forks had been substantial. His series of fortifications had cost the French over 4 million livres and approximately 400 lives. The French placing a fort at the Forks of the Ohio was of the most serious concern for the British. The British had now for years been pouring into the Ohio and had taken great strides towards ensuring that the region was under their control. In order for this endeavor to continue, it was absolutely imperative that the British continue to hold control over the Forks of the Ohio. With both the British and the French, therefore, placing forts in what amounted to the same spot near the Forks, it was all but inevitable that there was going to be a conflict. As we wrap up this week, I want to take just a moment to look at the overall situation on the ground in the Ohio country. The British are increasingly becoming the biggest player in the region. With both Pennsylvania and Virginia making large claims, the colonies were steadily growing in influence throughout the entire area. Though it is important to remember that there is still little in the way of intercolonial cooperation between the colonies. Virginia and Pennsylvania are not working together for the greater empire. Rather, they are competitors doing all they could to gain an economic advantage over the other. The Iroquois continued to decline in power in the region. They were forced to strike a delicate balance between their neutrality and seeking the most favorable trading partners. During the early part of the 1750s, the most favorable trading partners were the British, much to the chagrin of French Canada. Despite these favorable trading deals with the British colonists, 
the Iroquois still needed to be mindful of allowing too much settlement. They needed to allow enough to continue to encourage those favorable trade agreements, but had zero interest in widespread British settlement in the Ohio region. The Iroquois were well aware of what happened to tribes when the colonists moved in. For them, the trade was welcome. But at the end of the day, please go back home. Finally, there was, of course, the French. After years of disorganized responses lacking in any kind of meaningful goals, the arrival of the Marquis Duquesne was primed to change that and marked the beginning of a new response. From those pointless lead plates of Celeron to the much more dramatic, though ultimately rather ineffective attack by Langlade, the French response to the British expansion into the Ohio country had been lackluster. Duquesne, however, had no interest in continuing down that pointless and futile road. His series of forts, specifically that one near the forks of the Ohio, are going to make a conflict between the British and the French all but inevitable. Next time, we are going to examine just what happens when the French and the British decide to build a fort in the same place. In addition to that, we are about to introduce somebody new to our story. A young surveyor from Virginia is about to take his first steps onto the world stage. And I assure you all that he is going to become very, very important. Until then, I hope you all have a fantastic two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time when we meet a young George Washington. <laughs>